We'll begin in verse 1 this morning. And after this morning's message, we will, uh, for the next four weeks, we will leave the Gospel of John and walk through the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, we'll be walking through Isaiah for the uh, month of December as we go through Advent. Uh, But this morning, uh, we will focus on the Gospel of John in a familiar miracle miracle story, perhaps, for most of us, um, the feeding of the 5,000. And so, uh, if you've arrived at John chapter 6, I want to invite you to say amen. Let us read or follow along as I read. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, a number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves and which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the signs which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force, To make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, it is our prayer that in the same manner which Christ looked up and saw the multitude of people coming and had compassion upon them, that, Lord, you would have compassion upon our gathering this morning. That you would look upon us and that you would see us right where we are. And that you would help us to rejoice in you and help us, God, to be confessional in you and repentant in you. Lord Jesus, that you would speak to our hearts today. And so we pray that right now, in in this moment, we yield ourselves unto you for your sake, for your glory, for everything we do this morning is about you, Lord Jesus. And so we ask you to grip our hearts with the love for your word and our minds to understand your word and Holy Spirit that you would illumine us to to be able to comprehend the depth of your word. And so we ask this in the strong and the powerful name of Christ. Amen. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, I think one of the main themes that we see throughout the whole of chapter 6 is that Jesus is the all-satisfying provider. And we see that on a number of levels. We see it through the, the, the highlighting of the Passover uh, theme that, that, uh, that 
John brings out here in, in chapter 6. We, we see it as, uh, as Jesus brings bread from heaven, as Dr. David read from Exodus and God providing manna. Uh, in the midst of the, his people's wandering in the wilderness, God was providing and feeding them. And so just foundationally, the kind of the driving thrust of, of the, the miracle of multiplying bread into fish is that God is providing through Christ not only food that feeds their physical bodies, but what we need to see is he is providing spiritual food which nourishes nurtures our soul, which nourishes us for eternal life. And those who eat of this bread that Jesus provides, they are the ones that have eternal life. That's really at the heart of of what chapter 6 is all about. And so Jesus makes some some hard statements in chapter 6. Statements like, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no part in the kingdom of heaven. For this reason that many people walked away and said, this is too hard. We can't, we can't do this. We can't follow this. Of course, Jesus is pointing to himself as the very provision from God. Christ himself is the one that God has given. As God has stepped down into humanity in the person of Christ, the son. And he has walked among us and he has given his life and redeemed all those who believe in him and profess faith in him. And believe upon the work that he has accomplished in the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension where now he sits at the Father's right hand interceding for all those who profess faith in him. This is the promise of God's word and this is ultimately what, what John is pointing us to as we see Jesus' interaction with the crowd and those who were following him, those would-be disciples. I m- mentioned a moment ago that this sign, it's the only one, this miracle is the only one that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. At least I think I, think I mentioned that. But in, anyway, nonetheless, it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The only one. And it's interesting, when we take all four of these accounts and kind of lay them on, on top of one another, we can see some of the time gaps that, that need to be filled in if we're reading John's account and then look back to Matthew, Mark, and Luke and we maybe wrestle a little bit with the time gaps. But they're all to be filled in. And then we also notice from John's account that he gives us some missing details that we might be asking as we read through the synoptic accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so they they complement one another, but ultimately John has a specific purpose for giving us the details that he gives us. For example, in verse 1, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That, That introductory phrase, after these things, it just generally speaks, not necessarily about what has just happened in John chapter 5. So I think it's important for us to notice this so that we don't look at Scripture and say, well, well, the Bible contradicts itself because these stories are not consistent. No, they are, but there's simply a, a theme. There's a, there is a narrative that the author is trying to point out as he's writing the Gospel of John that's different than what Matthew and Mark and Luke are communicating in their telling of the Gospel. It doesn't mean it's false or wrong. It's simply a different perspective. And we'll see in a moment, one of the themes that, that John is highlighting in writing the gospel is he's, he's showing us Passover and the connection between Passover as the people of God, the, the deliverance of God for his people, and what we see now through Christ as the one who has come, the Lamb. And so in Matthew fourteen, thirteen through 21, Matthew tells us that Jesus had just received news about John the Baptist. He was sad. 
He wanted to get in the boat and to go away with his disciples and just have some seclusion to leave the crowds and be by himself with his disciples. Another way that we see a a difference here is John's account tells us a little bit about the disciples. He tells us that it it was Philip and Andrew in verses 5 and 7 of chapter 6. It was Philip and Andrew who were the actors on behalf of disciples with the multiplying of the bread. The parallel accounts in Mark and Luke, Mark 6 and Luke 9, tell us that the disciples had just returned from being sent out to minister in pairs by two. And they had come back and they were reporting to Jesus because he had given them power to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And and they were preaching and calling people to repentance. And so this is kind of, this is where we pick up in verse 3 of John chapter 6. Then Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat down with his disciples. And that's what John chapter 6, when we read, after these things, Jesus went away to the other sea side of the Sea of Galilee. That's, that's the things, after these things. These are the things that immediately preceded what Jesus is about to do. And so if you've ever been on a mission trip, you've ever spent the day just exerting yourself and, and giving of yourself, or we could even parallel this to... Uh, a, a day of hard, intense labor. If you've given yourself to hard, intense labor all day and then you come home, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to get out and mow the yard, right? I mean, that, that's what you want to do. That's what's on your mind. Uh, for the disciples, they've given themselves in, in the ministry. They've, they've spent themselves in casting out demons and healing the sick and, uh, and preaching for the people to come to repentance. And so Jesus is taking them away with the sad news he has just received. He, He's taking them away to the other side of the sea so they could just have a moment, a moment of quiet rest. You ever been there? (laughs) You ever wanted a a moment of quiet rest? Generally, that happens in our house before the hours of 6 a.m. or after the hours of 9 a.m. where we have that quiet rest. He he just wanted some time for quiet. so He could take his disciples and invest in them and encourage them and teach them and maybe debrief a little bit. But we pick up in verses 2 through 4, and I want you to see what happens, how, how things kind of turn, and they, they don't shape out the way we think they might would as Jesus is trying to steal away some time with his disciples. In verses 2 through 4, we see, really we see the crowd's pursuit. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And that is to say the people were, they were drawn to Jesus because they saw these signs that he was performing. I mean, they were amazed at the wonder and the power that this man could work. And I, I think they were drawn to him for at least two reasons. And I think they're important for us to consider this morning. One reason, the first one I'd mentioned to you is they, they were drawn to him because, because of this sensational I mean, they were attracted to this man. He was sensational in everything that he did, especially when it came to these these wonderful acts. I think we're familiar with being attracted to the sensational today. I mean, it it really seems to be kind of caught up in in our DNA, right? we're, We're just intrigued by it. It's really inherent within us. We're captivated by the inexplicable. 
We, we can't explain how this would be possible, but it mesmerizes us. And we're amazed when we see something happen that defies all natural possibility. You know, this is proven if you think about the throngs of people who gathered to watch. Back in the 1900s, early 1900s, like guys like Harry Houdini, they would gather to watch guys like this who could do inexplicable feats and accomplish things. Or, or even today, the, the modern uh, illusionists or, or magicians like, uh, like David Blaine or, or Chris Angel. Since the earliest times, people have been fascinated and mesmerized by those who claim to have special powers or abilities. It was the case in Pharaoh's day, right? Pharaoh had these magicians, these sorcerers, and and he called those magicians forth to to mimic the powerful miracles of God through his prophet Moses. Fast forward to the New Testament, and in Acts chapter 8, we we see Simon the magician. He wanted to buy the power of these two apostles, Peter and John, when he saw them lay hands on the new converts— and they received the Holy Spirit. He wanted to buy that power. He's offering money to buy that power. You see, the crowds were following Jesus for the wrong reasons. They were missing the point. Jesus didn't engage them to be an entertaining miracle worker. No, he engaged them to teach, her, teach them deeper things. He had compassion upon the crowd. He, he engaged them. He had compassion upon them. He wanted to... To, to point them to see that the Messiah, God's provision, God's promise had arrived. Second reason I think they were following him that I want us to consider this morning is that they had needs. I mean, they literally had needs. They, they wanted to be healed. They knew Jesus possessed the power to heal. And so Matthew 14, 14 says, when he, when he went ashore, they saw a large crowd and felt, he saw the large crowd, felt compassion for them. And healed their sick. Here in verse 2, it just tells us that he was performing signs on those who were sick. But he, he exercised compassion upon them. I just want to point out that it, it's a tragedy when people are healed, even today, and, and miss the point of their ailment. And, and, and they miss the point of the healing that they have received. It's a tragedy when people refuse to give glory to God for the healing in their life. And James tells us, even James, he tells us that every what good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Chapter 1, verse 17. When someone's healed, it's because God has seen fit by his mercy to remove sickness from their body and bring and restore life. And that's what was happening in verse 2. That's what was happening as Jesus encountered and walked among the crowd. He was healing them. You might think to yourself, does this really happen? Does it really happen that somebody would be healed and then deny or reject Christ? And I would remind you that yes, it does. In Luke chapter 17, verse 12. There's a story of ten lepers who stood at a distance and then Christ came and they met him and they, they raised their voices saying to Jesus, have mercy, Jesus master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, listen, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. He was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, 
Were there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. But even in this, even in the midst of the healing that the people were receiving that day as they come to Christ and the compassion that he's exerting on them, they really weren't concerned much beyond themselves. In fact, that's that's evidence. They were that's evidence in verse 66 of chapter six. You see, they, they weren't interested in Jesus's true identity. Verse 66 says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. You see, they were following for all the wrong reasons. They were missing the point. How many today miss the point of Christ and Christianity? So many, so many have the mentality that what will Jesus do for me? This really is the 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 indicting mantra of the American church, of American Christianity. Many in the church today are being seduced by the lie that Christianity is all about me. I mean, think about it. Pick your flavor, whether it be contemporary, whether it be casual or formal or blended or entertaining, easygoing, high church, thick liturgy, intellectual, social, motivational, short service, non-intrusive service. The list can go on and on. Think about it. And you've got a church that's trying to to give you that flavor in the gathering, corporate gathering. We've made following Christ more about following self to the point that the real question being asked is, does the church meet my needs? And it's no wonder the church has become ineffective at reaching a lost world and discipling those who are saved. We've believed a convenient lie that God exists to make us happy. No, God exists because he is. And because he is, he commands our reverence and he commands our worship. You see, the crowds were pursuing Jesus for their own benefit. That's really what that was about. I would ask us the question this morning, what are we pursuing? Are we pursuing the convenient Christ who makes us feel good about ourselves because we went to church, but then we live however we want, Monday through Saturday? Are we pursuing the convenient Christ that allows us to live and really in luxury comparatively to the rest of the world, yet we are walking in our own way and doing our own thing, living a life really excluded from God because we are not pursuing Him truly, but our own means? Or are we... Pursuing Christ as the treasure of our life, as the one who, who is, gives us joy and the one who gives us purpose in following him. But not only do we see the pursuit of the crowds, we, secondly, we see the disciples test. They are tested. We all have become familiar with tests in our day. If you've ever taken a test, you know that in order to pass the test, there's much study and much preparation given to the subject matter. You, I mean, you pour yourself in to study and to prepare for the test. For the disciples, they come to a point of testing. And the testing that they come to is, is a testing in verse 5, verse 6 rather. And in verse 6, it says, this he was saying to test them. 
We must connect the dots between Jesus' identity and John's emphasis here on Passover. And so I, I want us to see how in verse 4, John sets the stage by saying uh, that it was the Passover, the Feast of the Jews was near. If you've, attending, if you've been attending Sunday morning uh, Bible study in Exodus, you've seen how important the Passover was for, for the Jewish people. And for John, there's a theological significance in mentioning Passover. He mentions Passover three times throughout his gospel. And it serves really as a, a theological lens through which John narrates the life and the ministry of Christ. He's pointing us to the significance of Christ in his mission by weaving the thread through the biblical narrative and, and tightening the seam so that he, he shows us the, the consistency throughout the biblical narrative. He's drawing our minds back to Exodus and bringing passages like Deuteronomy 18.18 18 to mind, to the forefront of our minds, where God, speaking to Moses, says, I'll raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them and uh, as I command him. See, the time of, of Passover was a celebration for God's people. They celebrated God's provision and deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It was a time when the people took the life of a lamb to spare the firstborn child that was birthed in their home. And then they would take the blood and put it over the door so that death would pass over and not rest upon their home. It was the wrath of God being poured out in the form of the tenth plague. And for the night of Passover, they would eat the lamb together as a meal and it was significant because it was the lamb's life that was taken that was actually allowing them, giving them the provision to leave. So in John chapter 1, John the Baptist, in giving us his testimony, he has already shared Jesus is the lamb of God. He has revealed to us Jesus is the lamb of God. He told his disciples following him, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the first time that John mentions Passover in his Gospels in chapter 2, verse 13, where he's, he's pointing them to see that his very presence is the presence of God because he says, destroy this temple and three days later I will raise it. The third time John mentions Passover is in chapter 11, verse 55. And in John eleven fifty-five, at the time 55, it was at the time of his death pointing that Jesus himself is the deliverer. He is the one who is coming to deliver men from their sins. And so in John chapter 12, there's, this, there's a turn in the Gospel of John. And that turn in the Gospel of John is when we see Christ turn his face toward the cross, and it's known as the Passion, where he's heading to the cross. And so this is all set, get this, it's all set in the context of Passover. This morning we see the second time he speaks of Passover here in verse 4. The theological import of the Passover connection points us to see that Christ is, Jesus Christ is, the all-satisfying provider. He is the one who provides for all of his people's needs. And so seeing Jesus as the all-satisfying provider requires faith that will be tested. See, Jesus went up on the mountain with his disciples to rest. And as he's there... He looks up and he sees the multitude or the crowds coming to him. 
And then he asked one of his disciples, Philip, Philip, where do we buy bread for all these people? And Philip, not knowing how, how to respond, I mean, the point isn't that Jesus didn't know where to get bread. The point is that he's giving a, a test here to his disciples. John clues us into that in, in verse 6. And, and in fact, in, in verse 9, Andrew doesn't really do any better. There was a lad who has five barley loaves and two fish. And then Andrew adds, but quite cynically, I would say, but what, what have these, what are these for so many people? Andrew didn't believe that this would really amount to feeding the, the 5,000 men that were there. In fact, it was more than 5,000. 5,000 was the number of men who sat down in that place, but there were women and children that were there as well. Possibly upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people gathered in that place. But whether it's 5,000 or whether it's 20,000, the point is five barley loaves and two fish could not feed all of these people. In fact, Philip's answer is pretty telling. Even eight months' worth of wages wouldn't be enough for everybody to have just a little bit. The point, the point of Jesus asking this question to his disciples is, is to test his disciples. He is, he is testing them and teaching the disciples to have faith. And what we need to see is God is not limited by man's lack of faith. Jesus Christ is not limited by man's lack of faith. In fact, George Mueller said it this way. He says, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible There's no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. You know, this is exactly what the Lord was teaching his disciples. Let me just say, believer, we've we've got it all wrong if we're trying to walk the road of discipleship in our own strength. And if we're trying to reach the world for Christ by by our own strategic planning. The God-sized work of making disciples of the nations from Baton Rouge to the uttermost will not be accomplished by short-sighted, man-centered approaches to, to bringing the gospel. We must have a Christocentric faith. We must have faith that looks to Christ and that trusts Christ to do the things that we cannot do. That's how, that's how we bring the gospel to the nations. The disciples, not just Philip and Andrew, the disciples couldn't see any possible way to feed the multitude. It was incomprehensible to them. Do you see that? Augustine says, God does not expect us to submit our faith to him without reason. But the very limits of our reason make faith a necessity. The test for the disciples' faith was whether or not they truly believed Jesus to be the all-satisfying provider. You know, the disciples walked through this test really to that their faith would grow as they walked and as they were obedient. James 1, 2 through 4 talks to us about testing. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, it is the process of the Lord Jesus Christ, of of God working in our lives to bring about tests. 
which tempt us. They, we, we are tempted, not by God, but through denying Christ in the midst of tests that we walk through. And these tests, though, they're, they're ways that God works in our lives to strengthen, to, to increase our faith, to make our faith more solid. First Peter 1, 6, Peter says it this way, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. You see what happens in the midst of testing? Our faith is increased as we walk obediently following God, following Christ. Believe it, let me ask you a question. Is, is God testing your faith in a specific way right now? At this point and season in your life? Are you walking through tests is there one specific test that he's, he's really driving home in your life and, and you can't seem to see the end and you don't know where it's going to lead you? But you're committed to walk in obedience? Are you thinking about giving up and throwing in the towel? How are you responding to the testing of your faith? Are you, are you, are you making a commitment to Christ to grow? Are you making a commitment to Christ to, to go? Are you making a commitment to Christ to, to give? What test is happening? Is there a test happening in your life, in your faith right now? Church, God desires to reach the nations with the gospel of Christ from Baton Rouge to the uttermost and in Baton Rouge, here in this city, he has many people in this city. And he wants to use his people, the church, he wants to use Crosspoint to reach them and to disciple them. We do this by living out our faith in, in our neighborhoods and, and in our jobs, our workplaces, through, through our business dealings. Listen, God wants us to be a light for his glory let me just take a moment to affirm us as a, as a congregation this morning and just say that Crosspoint, God has, has been using us. He's been using Crosspoint, and He wants to continue to use Crosspoint to make disciples and to engage in this mission. Even though the disciples failed the test, Jesus continues to carry out His plan. Now, I think we see this in verses 10 through 13, but I want to be careful on how we view 10 through 13, because the reality is that when the disciples lacked faith, Jesus graciously and abundantly provided the test was for him. Them failing the test did not thwart God's plan here. Verse 13, notice what happened. So they gathered them up and and filled 12 baskets with fragments. Get this, each disciple had his own basket of leftovers. I wonder how it sat with them as the next day they're eating leftovers out of the individual baskets. I mean, each one, I mean, they had so little faith that Christ could take five loaves and two fishes, right? And now all of a sudden they've got 12 basketfuls left over, one for each disciple, perhaps. Lord's Prayer, where he teaches them to, to pray, Lord... Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. I want you to hear this. I think one of the truths that we learn in verses 10 through 13 especially is that God's abundant provision 
is no excuse for waste. God's abundant provision is no excuse for waste. I want to speak for a moment just about God's abundant provision. We're talking about his providing of food here, but it certainly is uh, it's symbolic of much more than just food. I think it's symbolic for us. We need to understand God's abundant provision in our own lives financially uh, in this country that we live in. God's, God's abundant provision, it, it's no excuse for waste. And as a church, uh, as we come and, and bring our, our, our offering and our tithes before the Lord, this is where I want to affirm us as a, as a congregation. The sacrificial giving that is, that is done here is used to glorify God. When we participate in an offering like this this morning, we use it to glorify God. And I want to share with you, because I don't know that all of us know or are aware of this, but you know, in, in the year of 2013, Crosspoint gave uh, $92,000 to missions out of its receipts that came in. And this is for the glory of God. And another 30000 from savings was, was allocated to support the mission work that was happening as a, as a ministry of Crosspoint in Baton Rouge. That's 20%, or maybe a little over, 20% of what we give through tithes and offerings. I, I just share that to say that God's abundant provision is no excuse for waste, and we take that seriously in all things. We live in a land of excess, and it would be easy for us to misappropriate. And so we must always be on guard, and we must always take care and, and be intentional. And as each of us gives sacrificially to the Lord, Crosspoint gives generously to support the work of the gospel right here in Baton Rouge to the nations. And as our tithe and offerings increase, guess what? So does our ability to make disciples and impact the nations for God's glory we see a second truth at work in verses 10 through 13, and that is this. God always accomplishes his purpose. His plan cannot be thwarted. God always accomplishes his purpose. Job 42.2, Job going through the midst of a difficult, difficult test, his faith being tried. He, he said these words, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You see, in, in spite of the disciples' faithless efforts and, and their doubts, Jesus takes five barley loaves and, and two fish and feeds the multitudes of people. Verse 12 suggests to us that it wasn't just a snack. They were filled. Do you see that? When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. In other words, their hunger was satisfied. In fact, it was probably the best bread and fish that they had ever eaten. It was from heaven, right? It was heavenly. It was good. Jesus is truly the all-satisfying provider. And I want us to see that this morning. He provides for every need that his people have. As he sees fit, he is providing. He is truly the all-satisfying provider. I don't want to paint the disciples in an unfair light. because I, I want to highlight for us that they... They display obedience to the Lord. In, in all of this, they still display obedience to the Lord. The synoptics tell us, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us that the disciples coordinated the groups of 50s and 100s and had them sit down, and they themselves were, were dispersing all of the food, passing it out. 
I can only imagine what the disciples, as as they witnessed this miracle of Christ, they must have been astounded to see his creative power and his hand at work as he makes bread to feed. Think about it. I mean, for our Thanksgiving meal, we fed, what, 215 people, 220, I don't know. Uh, and it was good, yeah. But, but it, it cost. And it was $800 just for the, uh, the, the meat and the things that the church bought in order to do that. Now, think about that. Here's what, here's what uh, Philip's saying. Eight months' worth of wages can't even give enough for everybody to eat one little bit, right? Verse 12 tells us they ate, and they ate some more. And they ate until they were full. They were satisfied. There was no hunger left. Jesus satisfied their physical hunger. He satisfied their physical hunger to point to the greater reality that in Christ there is true satisfaction of of our souls. That he meets the spiritual hunger of our souls and he satisfies our souls as no one else can. I want to finish this morning by asking us to consider a question. Are we like the disciples or are we like the crowd? Now, immediately we want to say we're like the disciples. We're not like the crowd. Think about the disciples. They grew in faith. They saw the sign of the multiplied bread and fish as pointing to the glory of God in Christ. And the truth of the matter is this, their faith increased through obedience to Christ. You see, church, as we walk in obedience to Christ, you know what happens? He gives increase to our faith. As we're faithful in the small things and walk obediently, God grows our faith and he teaches us how to how to love him more. As we walk faithfully to Christ in obedience to Christ, he increases our faith. That's the disciples. They maybe they missed the test like we missed the test. But they came out of it by walking in obedience. And in the midst of their obedience, their faith grew as they watch what Christ does, even in spite of them. They watch what Christ does. He teaches them in the midst of this test. That's where some of us are this morning. We're in the midst of a test and we're learning. And every day doesn't seem like a victory. Every day doesn't seem like we're walking in in obedience. But stand up and cry out to Christ. Ask for his strength. Ask for the Holy Spirit's presence to, to lead and to guide, to teach us in the midst of a test that we are walking through. Pray and cry out for perseverance and endurance in the midst of the test. Notice the crowd quickly in verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15 vividly describe for us how they got it in one sense, but really missed it. In verse 14, they, the people saw the sign which he had performed and they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Their minds are drawn back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. They think of Moses feeding God's people and the manna coming down from heaven. They don't deny the the miracle that has just happened. And Jesus doesn't deny that they point to him as the prophet. 
But it goes a step further and says they were intending to take him by force and to make him king. You see, Jesus had healed their sick and he had filled their stomachs. And they were ready to make him king. They thought, here's our ticket. Here's the one that has power and he meets our needs. He satisfies the things that we want, things that we need. Jesus doesn't deny the connection, but I want you to notice we can be right intellectually about Jesus and still lack faith in him as the all-satisfying provider. And that's what happens here. They're right. He is the prophet, the one like Moses who has come. That's true. But they miss the point of who he is and his identity. They were trying to fit Jesus into their view of Messiah instead of allowing him to shape their view of his identity. You see, Jesus can't be manipulated. MacArthur says it this way, Jesus does not acquiesce to our whims or fancies. It's not about the masses. It's not about having our own view of who Christ is and why me and Jesus have this thing worked out. No, it's about submitting to his lordship. It's about surrendering to what he says, who he says he is, about his identity and who he is. It's not about us. It's all about him. You know, they're ready. They're ready to take Rome by force. There are 5,000 willing, ready men who are ready to stand up and march behind him as soldiers. Take him and make him our king. But Jesus won't allow them to shape his messianic destiny. The devil, listen, the devil will try manipulative tactics to distort God's mission through Moses or through his people. He did it in he did it in um, in Matthew chapter four, where he comes to Christ and Satan tempts Christ in the midst of the wilderness. We see this temptation coming at Christ. And so what does he do? He sends the disciples out in the boat. And he goes up to the mountain, he dismisses the crowd and goes up to the mountain alone by himself to pray. Piper says, he says it, it, this, in, in essence, Jesus is saying, I've come into the world the first time to rule men's lives, not by being their military captain, but by being their bread. I am going to triumph, not by subduing, subduing armies, but by satisfying souls. Isn't this really the point of what Jesus is after? He wants to satisfy the souls of all those that he's healing. He wants to truly satisfy the souls of those who eat the bread and are filled in their stomach. He wants to satisfy the souls of his people. Is your soul satisfied in Christ? Is Christ your all satisfying provider? Have you trusted in him for the soul satisfying food that only he can give? Is your faith increasing through your obedience to Christ in the midst of tests? Let me ask you this morning, which bread are you pursuing? Are you are you trying to satisfy the eternal longing of your soul with the temporal bread of the world? Or. Are you resting in Christ and dining in Christ and feasting upon Christ and upon his word? I want to challenge you this morning as you think about what what you're pursuing. In your relationship with Christ, what are we what are we pursuing? Consider this morning your heart before the Lord and 
And as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper in a few moments, celebrate what Christ has done, we might have life. Uh, I want to challenge you to confess any unrepentant sin in your life. Confess that before Him. Maybe you've recognized this morning that you don't truly know Christ, that you've been pursuing your own end, and, and you really don't know Christ. You don't have a relationship with Christ. And I want to challenge you this morning to repent before Him. Confess your sin to the Lord. Trust in Him as Savior and submit to Him as Lord and the one who leads and governs our lives. I'm going to pray, and this morning I want to invite you to either remain where you are and and simply do business with the Lord or even come and kneel at the steps and and do business with the Lord. I'll be down front if, if you would like for me to pray with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, you are truly the bread of heaven. And in a moment, we'll have a picture of just the reality of how you are satisfying. So, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us to follow you, to walk in obedience, and that you would grow our faith even in the midst of testing. Lord, reveal to us the areas where we are not pursuing you, but we're pursuing our own ends. Let us confess that before you, Lord Jesus, and let us draw near to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?